This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may help us to understand the words of Jesus and that uh, you will be able to truly uh, teach us what it means for us as we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now quite soon after I became a Christian, I had in my mind that I wanted to do full-time Christian ministry. I wanted to be a church minister. Now at that time, my parents were not Christian, so I was quite worried about telling them of my plans. So it was with uh, great fear and trepidation, I went to speak to my parents and I said, you know, mom, dad, I want to become a minister one day. But to my great surprise, my parents seemed to be pretty happy and supportive. But then my dad said to me, that's great, son. Minister of finance would be the best. So I was very shocked, and then I said, Hey, Mom, Dad, actually, what I meant was to be a Christian minister. And then my dad gave me this long lecture. And he said, Son, I told you before, he said, It's okay for you to go to church, but don't be a fanatic. Now, I'm sure that uh, some of you have heard that said to you before, you know, it's okay to be a Christian, it's okay to go to church, but don't be a fanatic. Now, today's passage, I think, really deals with this idea of should we be fanatics if we are Christians? Or is there an appropriate level of fanaticism when it comes to being a Christian? How fanatical should we be as Christians? And I think that today's passage really addresses this issue. So in chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Now, In this passage, who is the them? The them here, primarily, were the chief priests and the Pharisees who were very against Jesus. So as we saw last week, if you look up here on this slide, right, they rejected and opposed Jesus. They rejected Jesus as Christ and his identity as Christ. So you know, when the children were singing praises to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David, they asked Jesus, you know, why do you allow the children to sing this to you? They rejected him as Christ. They opposed him in his authority as God. They asked him, by what authority do you have to do these things? And they rejected Jesus' preaching because the last few verses, just before chapter 22, they heard the parables of Jesus and they knew that he was talking about them. But instead of repenting, they looked for a way to arrest him but they were afraid of the crowd. But as we look at this passage, it's not just the Pharisees and the chief priests that Jesus was preaching to. They were not the only them in there, right? The crowd as well is the secondary audience to which Jesus is preaching to. And that's why when you look at the parables, it's not just parables rebuking the chief priests and the teachers of the law, but... It's also to teach people, the crowds, the vast crowds, who some were disciples, some were just neutral, some were just questioning and investigating, about the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus then says in verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, 
This is a picture of a celebration, of joy, of a very special time. Because, you know, when we think of a, a, a wedding celebration, we think, okay, that's, that's a time of great joy. But a wedding celebration for the king would be joy, not just for the king, but for the whole nation, for all people. So, um, you know, if you think of the most famous wedding, recent wedding, king's wedding, right? It would be the wedding of uh, Prince Henry and, uh, okay, I have to ask my wife, Meghan Merkel, right? Okay, but it was a celebration for the whole of uh, the UK, right? It was like a very special occasion in which there was lots of joy and happiness, not just for the king's family or the queen's family, but for the whole nation, Right, so you can see, you know, if you watch on TV or look at the photographs or you follow the news, you know, it was a time of a special celebration for the British people. And that's why in verse 3, it was such a shock when you read the parable where it says, The king sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Because within the context of a king's son's wedding, to receive an invitation to the wedding banquet would be something of great prestige and great privilege. And it's not something that you can actually say no to. Now, I'm sure that uh, all of us here have received wedding invitations. All of us here have received wedding invitations. And sometimes, I confess myself, you know, you say no to the wedding Invitation, right? I'm sure all of you have said no before to some wedding invitation. But we all know that there are some wedding invitations that you cannot say no to. You know, like uh, your family relative or, you know, uh, your dad's close business associate or your close friend. You just can't say no to these things because to say no to these things would be unheard of, it will be rude and disrespectful. But that's what makes verse 4 even more surprising, right? Because the king is not offended, but instead in verse 4, he said, Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who had been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. See, God is a a generous God. God is a gracious God as he's presented in this parable. When he's rebuked, when he's rebuffed, when he's rejected, he doesn't take it to heart and say, okay, you don't want to come, that's it. Instead, he sends more servants and invites them and tells them how great this wedding banquet will be. The best foods, the best entertainment, they are sure to enjoy themselves. Now, how different it is from normal people, right? You know, I, I, last week I, uh, I had a friend of mine who was telling me about how he was very offended because he invited a friend or his, his ex-friend to come to do something with him, right? It was like some invitation to take part in something and this friend uh, rejected him but later on he found out that this friend actually went somewhere else with somebody else. And so he was very offended and said, I will never invite this person again. But God is not like that. The picture of God here is of a patient, generous, and gracious God. Even though the initial invitees reject Him, He still perseveres to keep inviting them to come to the wedding banquet. 
But in the verse 5 to 7, Jesus continues on the parable and he says, But they paid no attention to him, and they went off, and one to his field and another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, the rudeness of the people is really shocking because it says here that they paid the king's servants no attention. Instead, they went off and did their normal, everyday, mundane, trivial thing. You know, they went to do their business, some went to work. It's not as if they were sick or they had some legitimate excuse, but they just couldn't be bothered. They just bought up the king. But what was even more shocking was that some of them, we read here in the passage, actually abused and seized the king's servants, mistreated them, and some even went so far as to kill them. Now, when we look at this from our modern eyes, we think, okay, they just killed them, right? It's, it's, it's murder. But I think that for the original hearers in the crowd that day, there would be greater significance to what Jesus had just said. Because when you kill or abuse the king's servants, you're not just killing normal people, but you're actually abusing and killing representatives of the king. So, uh, last week in the newspaper, I was reading a newspaper about this uh, Australian man and this Russian woman who was his wife or fiancé. And apparently they had a fight in a nightclub and the police were called. So, uh, the husband punched uh, this club promoter and the wife slapped a policewoman. Hey, but the, the man only got a fine but the woman got two weeks jail. But you sort of say, hey, how come it's strange, right? Because, you know, the man punched someone and she only slapped someone, right? But, but it's who she slapped, right? Because she slapped a police officer, right? A policewoman. So when you slap a police officer or a policewoman, you're not just slapping a person. You're actually slapping the law, right? You're slapping the state. You're slapping the governing authorities. Because you're, you, you're slapping their representative. In the same way, when we read here that the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them, the original hearers wouldn't be hearing of just killing. They would be hearing of treason and rebellion and revolt against the king. And that's why the king's reaction in verse 7 was totally justified because that's what happened in the ancient world. If a town rebels or revolts against the king, then the king comes and destroys the town and punishes the people. Now, as we read this passage, we can't help but realize that the primary audience right, was the Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious authorities. Because that was how they reacted to God's invitation to come into the kingdom of heaven. So John the Baptist, right? remember John the Baptist who came and prepared the way for Jesus? He was telling people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But how did the people react? How did the authorities react? Remember, John the Baptist was beheaded in prison. Jesus came and began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But then the Pharisees and the religious authorities 
They rejected Jesus and they plotted on how to kill Jesus. So when Jesus speaks this parable to the crowds, especially to the religious authorities and the chief priests and the Pharisees, he's speaking very directly to them. Their rejection of him ultimately will lead to their death and their punishment and their judgment. Now I think that as we even come to this part of the parable, it speaks to us directly. Because God's invitation into the kingdom of heaven still stands today. God is still patient. God is still gracious. God is still welcoming us and inviting us into the kingdom of heaven. Now for those of us who are sitting here today, and who have not accepted the invitation to come into the kingdom of heaven, then the question you have to ask yourself is, why are you not accepting God's invitation to the kingdom of heaven? It's going to be great. It's going to be a time of special joy and celebration. Why are you not coming to the kingdom of heaven? What reasons do you have to not come into the kingdom of heaven? Are they just mundane, trivial reasons? Because of this life, because of work, because of some excuse that you have. Or maybe you have a great unhappiness with God in some way. You feel that God is unfair for imposing things upon you, expectations on you. But at the end of the day, what this parable says is you will still be destroyed whether your excuses are mundane and trivial or whether you rebel against God. So many years ago, I, I read this book. Uh, one of you in this congregation, I lent this book to. I, I, I need it back, actually. Okay. Um, uh, anyway, so this book, actually, is a, it's a wonderful book. right? And um, it's a book, it's one of, I think, C.S. Lewis's best books. right? And basically, it's, it's an it's a allegorical story of how people come down from heaven in this train, okay? And they come into this world to find their loved ones, to invite them back to the train to go up to heaven. And throughout this book, it's all about how all these loved ones on, on earth, so to speak, have all these barriers and excuses to not go to the train to go to heaven with their loved ones. And all the reasons are very sad and tragic because when you see it within the context of the book, you see that all these excuses are just excuses. And it's such a tragedy because they miss out on the glory that awaits them if they would go onto that train. So I hope for us, we are not like those people who have all these excuses which are really mundane and trivial excuses so that we do not go and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus goes on. Then he said to his servants in verse 8, The wedding banquet is ready, but those are invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now it's quite interesting here, 
because now the invitation is open to everyone, but, but it's actually described here in verse 10 that the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. Now, why does Jesus say this? Uh, Jesus is not someone who misspeaks or someone who says things accidentally or, you know, without forethought. Why does he say the bad and the good? I don't think he's talking about objectively bad and objectively good people, because we know that we are all objectively bad in God's eyes. But he's saying that God now invites all sorts of people in society. Those that society sees are the bad, and those that the society see are the good, the religious people or the righteous people. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus said, right, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you, right, the, the Pharisees and the priests. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that God opens up the invitation into the kingdom of heaven, into the wedding banquet, to all people in society. Not just the good people, but the ones that society sees are the bad people. Right? The prostitutes and the tax collectors, they are invited to come into the kingdom of heaven. And the point that Jesus is trying to make here is a very deep spiritual truth in which the kingdom of heaven is made up of all sorts of people, not just those that society thinks deserves to be in. So, if you go past, you know, Otter Road Presbyterian Church in the city, right? If you drive past, you know, near Plaza Sing, there'll be God. They always have a very interesting uh, banner at the front of the church. And uh, actually, if you go to the internet, you can see there's uh, people who've taken photographs of all the different banners. And there was a banner which appeared, right, in 2014, which says, this nice church is not for perfect people. Actually, what it's really saying is the church is made out of sinners, right? It's not made out of perfect people. It's made out of sinners. And that's the point that Jesus is making here in the parable. The invitation goes out to everybody, not just the perfect people, the good people, but the bad people, those that society thinks does not deserve to go into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then goes on to say in verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, hey, this is really interesting, right? Because, you know, when you think about it, if Jesus was just preaching this parable to rebuke the religious authorities, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he would have ended on verse 10, right? Because he already said, hey, you guys are condemned. I've now invitation, opened the invitation to everybody. But yet he still preaches on in verse 11 to 14, right? He could have easily ended the parable in verse 10. So why does Jesus preach 11 to 14? Because you know, 11 to 14 is really quite confusing, right? It's like, what is he talking about? What is the point? Now I know that actually, 
the point here, in a realistic way, is quite easy to understand. You know, whenever you get a, a wedding invitation, there's always a RSVP below, and there's always a dress code. You know, like black tie, smart casual, formal, right, casual. You know, there's an expectation, at least a minimal expectation of how you will dress before you go to the wedding. I mean, if you go in uh, your singlet and your pajama pants and your slippers, then, you know, you probably get thrown out. Lah. Maybe not by the bride and the bridegroom, but the bridegroom's parents or somebody will throw you out, right? I mean, I, I've been to some posh restaurants in Singapore where, you know, like people have asked me to wear a jacket or, you know, I have to wear pants or, you know, once I couldn't get into it because I was wearing slippers, even though it was actually sandals but not slippers, right? But you know what I'm saying, right? There's a minimum expectation that when you go into an, a special occasion that you must dress well. So if you remember the pictures of uh, Prince Henry's uh, wedding to Morgan, Merkel, you can see how they all dress, right? I mean, they're not wearing their t-shirts and their jeans, right? They're wearing good clothes. But what exactly does it mean in the parable? What does Jesus mean when he says that this person wasn't wearing wedding clothes and then he was kicked out? I think that what it means is that when you come into the kingdom of heaven, you can't come on your own terms, right? You can't come as you are, right? You know, you've actually got to come in based on the expectations and the instructions of the king. And I think what this means is that if you want to come into the kingdom of heaven, there must be repentance and there must be obedience and there must be surrender of self. Because in the whole of Matthew as we've been studying, it's not just that I believe in Jesus, okay, I can just turn up as I am. Right? Jesus demands that you must turn up different in obedience and repentance. So they're all this list of passages, right? So Jesus said in chapter 5, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew chapter 5, he talks about how if you lust and have adultery in your heart, then you will go to hell. Right? Or in Matthew chapter 6, uh, next slide, it says, if you love God, and you love money, well, you can't serve both. Right? Or if you do not acknowledge Jesus before men, then you will not be acknowledged in heaven. Or if you love your father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So I think that when, you, when we see the kingdom of heaven, when we enter into the kingdom of heaven, we can't just say, okay, I go in as I feel like it. You know, uh, just take me as I am. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not willing to change. You must actually change your clothes or change your behavior to repentance and total surrender of life to Jesus in order to be in the kingdom of heaven. And that's why I think when you look at this passage, it says that, that the man was speechless, right? Why was he speechless? I think he was speechless because, in a sense, he got found out, right? It's like, 
uh, it makes it sound really bad that I seem to go to restaurants underdressed. But you know, it's like when, when people find out that, you know, they, you, the, the waiter taps you on the shoulder and says, oh, by the way, you know, you need to change these pants or, you, you know, why are you wearing slippers? You're kind of like speechless, right? You're like, oh dear, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not dressed for this occasion. I, I've not actually done the right thing. So in the same way, Jesus puts this last part of the parable because there's a great danger that when the crowd hears the parable, they think that all they need to do is, I just believe in Jesus and I'm in the kingdom of heaven, I accept the invitation and I'm in. But Jesus says, no. No. You need to be dressed in the wedding clothes. You need to have repentance. You need to have surrender of life to God. So last week I, I used this illustration in the 4pm service. So if you're here from the 4pm, please excuse me. But this is a very good book. I've been reading it, right? Excellent book. Um, it's by uh, this very liberal English professor in America who became a Christian. And the last thing she expected was to become a Christian. Right? You, you should read it. It's an amazing book. But she, she defined conversion, her conversion as impact. That's what she sees her conversion as impact. She says, Becoming a Christian to her was like having a car crash or having a train wreck because that's the impact that it had on her life. When she became a Christian, her whole life changed, right? Her, her, her perspectives, her worldview, her friends, her causes, everything, right? And that's how Jesus is actually describing entry into the kingdom of heaven. You need to change into the wedding clothes. You need to change your dress, who you are. So I introduced in the introduction the question of how fanatical do we need to be as Christians, right? Well, it actually says that we do need to be fanatical. Because if you think that being a Christian is just coming to church on a Sunday, then actually you're wasting your time, right? Because if you think that Becoming a Christian is just coming to church on a Sunday. You're wasting your time because you, you've got better things to do on Sunday morning because coming to church on Sunday, if that's all it is, is not going to keep you into the kingdom of heaven. Because you are, you're entering into the kingdom of heaven without actually changing into wedding clothes. And many people think that all I need to do to be saved is to go to church on Sunday. But that parable says, no, that's not true at all, right? It's much, much more than just coming to church on a Sunday. You need to change into these wedding clothes so that when God sees you, you're dressed appropriately for Him. And that's why in Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus warned, right, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Jesus then went on, and um, in verse 15, the Pharisees, they came back and they laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others, 
because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then what is your opinion. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, what is the trap for Jesus here? Uh, the Pharisees want to kill Jesus, right? Okay, they are enemies of Jesus. What is the trap for Jesus with this question? It's about tax, right? Now, I know that um, actually tax is a, it's not a super big issue for Singaporeans. So I, I, that's my opinion. First of all, only 41% of Singaporeans pay tax, according to what I read in the internet. And 20% is the highest rate. So 20%, not very bad. And actually doing your tax in Singapore is super easy la, to me. Right? Uh, when I was in Australia and I was working for many years, I used to hate doing tax in Australia. And in fact, when you speak to a lot of Australians, whenever tax season comes around, they are also unhappy about tax. Because tax in Australia is really hard to do. And I'm an accountant, right? So <laughs> that's hard, okay? And the, the earliest tax rate the, the lowest tax rate is 19%. And it goes all the way to 45%, right? So you've got to keep calculating back and forth, all the stuff, and you've got all these uh, concessions and all those sorts of things. So when we look at this passage, we may think, oh, okay, it's a trap because, you know, the Jews didn't want to pay high taxes. But actually, you know, surprisingly, I was reading that uh, the tax that they pay in, in, in during the time is, is not that high compared to today, lah. But the problem that they were actually unhappy about was because it was a Roman tax. It was Roman direct taxation. So if you look at your footnote, right? Uh, my Bible has a footnote. So if you don't have it, then my Bible is superior to yours. But it says there, right? It says in point A in verse 17, the tax that the question was, the imperial tax is a special tax levied on subject peoples and not Roman citizens. Okay, so this is a direct taxation by Rome. And the Jews were very unhappy about it, and you would be unhappy too. Because first of all, to pay this tax, you need to change your money to Roman money. And that means that you lose not just on the tax, but on the exchange. Right? You, know, you can't just pay your shekels, you've got to pay your Roman coinage. Secondly, this Roman tax is, is literally called a, a tributum, right? It's a, it's a tribute to Rome. It's what you pay because Rome conquered you. Right? It's like the privilege of being a conquered people, I pay you tax. But what made it even worse was, as you look on the footnote, is the conquered people paid this tax, but the Romans didn't pay this tax. Right, so it's like, is that all the conquered people in the provinces pay Rome the tax and they enjoy this tax and the Romans themselves don't pay this tax. And what made this even worse was the tax goes up and down every year, right? Depending on whether Rome was fighting a war or not. So that means I'm paying more tax so that Rome can conquer more people so that they will get more money from these conquered people. So you can sort of understand why as a conquered people, the Jews were not really enthusiastic about paying this particular tax, right? It's not as if I pay this tax and I see, you know, sheltered, walkway, you know, MRT. It all goes back to Rome and I see nothing anyway, right? So when the Pharisees asked Jesus this question, they were very cunning, right? They said, you know, uh, hey, you're a man who's not swayed by others because you, you pay no attention to who they are. And what he's, they're really saying is, we know you speak the truth, right? And you don't listen 
to what other people say. You don't pay attention to who they may be, even if they are Romans, right? Because everybody hates this sex. So just, just speak the truth, right? Just, you know, speak your mind. But the other side of the problem is that if Jesus were to then say it's okay to pay tax to Rome, then a lot of people would be unhappy with Jesus because everybody doesn't want to pay this tax. So Jesus is like in a lose-lose position. Right? Whatever he says, he will get in trouble. He either get in trouble with the Romans or he will lose support from the Jews. And that's why verse 18 to 21 is what some commentators say is one of the most profound answers or the wisest answers that you will hear someone ever speak. Because in verse 18, Jesus says, But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and they asked them, he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Now, the denarius, uh, next slide, looks like this. Okay, this is a denarius. Okay? So on one side of the, the front side of the coin, or I don't know whether this coin got front or back, but the front side of the coin basically says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Okay? And the back basically says Pontiff Maximus, okay? the highest priest. So you know nowadays uh, in the Roman church we call them Pontiff, right? So it's like the, the priest, right? Now, you can understand why is it the Jews got so angry paying the Romans' tax. Because not only do they have the humiliation of paying this tax, they've got to buy this coin which is blasphemous. Because on the front of the coin you're basically saying that Caesar is divine, he is God. And on the back of the coin, you've got him saying that Caesar is the highest priest. And the Jews already have the highest priest. Right? So you can see why the Jews are so upset about paying this tax. Because they've got to change their money to buy this sort of coin to pay Rome themselves, which they find offensive. But Jesus says, look, whose image is on this coin? Whose inscription is on this coin? It, it belongs to Caesar, right? So give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now I think that as we expand on this idea, Jesus is actually saying it's not just money, right? But uh, if you look on the book of Romans, which Paul writes, I think Jesus actually is talking about not just money, but authority, and respect, right? Because in uh, Romans 13, which we're doing the 4 p.m. service, it says, you know, that is why you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So I think Jesus is actually saying that there's nothing wrong for us as Christians to pay tax. In fact, we should give and behave like law-abiding and responsible citizens, and give the authorities tax and respect and, and the honor. You know, so if a parking attendant comes and gives me a parking coupon, which I deserve, then I should say, thank you, right? Because I was wrong and I got fined, right? I, I, it's not just about paying taxes. And that's why I think even in Singapore, where the tax is quite low, in the next slide, the next 
Last week, you know, you see that there are still people trying to avoid paying tax in Singapore, even though it's not that high, right? But as Christians, we shouldn't be doing these things, right? We should pay what we owe to the government. We should give them honor respect that they do because God has appointed them there to govern. But Jesus could have ended there, right? If you look there in verse 21, you think about it, Jesus could have ended his sentence at give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Don't you think so? He already answered the question. He already avoided the trap. He didn't have to say anything more. But why does Jesus say, and to God, what is God's? Give back to God what is God. What is, what is he saying here? Well, I think the last part really is saying something much more profound than just paying tax to governing authorities. Right? What he's saying is Caesar is the earthly political king. You give to Caesar the respect. You give to Caesar the, the, the authority that he deserves. But there is a greater authority than Caesar. And that authority is God, isn't it? Because where do we find God's image? Is there a God coin? Like, you know, you take out your wallet, do you find a coin with God's image and inscription in it? No, you don't, right? But at a deeper, profound level, we are made in God's image. When we look in the mirror, we see God's image. So that's why when we read in our responsive reading today, we are made in the image of God. So I think what Jesus is saying at a much deeper level is give back to God what belongs to God. As we give authority to Caesar, as we give lordship to Caesar, we have a more profound giving back to God because we are made in God's image. I think that when we look at the previous parable, we may say to ourselves, why do I have to go and listen to the king and go to the king's son's wedding banquet? What allegiance do I have to this king? Who is this king to me? But when you look in the mirror and you understand what Jesus is saying, God is our king because we are his creatures. We are made in God's image. And therefore, we must give back to God what belongs to him. If we give Caesar his authority, how much more do we need to give God his authority? And if we are made as his creatures, how much more as creatures do we need to recognize the creator God over us? So as we look at just these two sections of chapter 22, right? You see that actually our relationship with God is a very deep one. The parable of the wedding banquet is not something that we can just say, well, you know, I'm not I don't really interested in coming to the wedding banquet. Because God is our king, God is our maker and creator. We have a deep and abiding responsibility and obligation to give him his authority, to give him his lordship, to heed his invitation and to come into the kingdom of heaven. And that means giving all of ourselves. So in conclusion, uh, I used to be a 
tennis fanatic. Right, so when you, if you came to my room when I was a teenager, I have posters of, okay, you know, not, not Roger Federer, but people like John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, you know, Bjorn Borg, all these are the bygone era. Lah, okay? And you know, I used to read tennis instruction books, go training, play tennis in the sun, right? Even when it's wet, we mop the court and still play tennis. I represented my school in tennis. You know, you're, you're proud of being a tennis fanatic, so to speak, right? I mean, some of you are fanatics in other ways, right? You're fanatics in running uh, marathons or bike riding or uh, cycle. You know, what does what, what Y do again? Uh, okay, but, but you know, so, but, but, but these are things that actually you can be proud of being fanatics about. But you know, if you tell people that you're fanatical about Jesus Christ, uh, people generally will not praise you for it. Like, you're, you're a fanatic, Christian fanatic? Hmm, sounds a bit negative, right? But when you actually understand the, the parable that Jesus spoke, and while he uh, rebuked the Pharisees, right, you actually see that the only, the only Christian worth being a Christian about is to be a Christian fanatic. Because if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you have to dress in those wedding clothes. God has made you in his image. And you owe God authority and lordship. If you're not a Christian fanatic, then really, in God's eyes, what's the point? Because you are no different from the Pharisees, or the chief priests, or the teachers of the law. Your eternal destiny is the same as the chief priests, and the, the, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. There's no point being a half-hearted nominal Christian. It just doesn't get you anything in the end. What profit is there from being a half-hearted Christian? It's all or nothing. So I hope that as we look at today's passage, it will be a real uh, challenge to us to consider that are we truly a Christian fanatic? Have we given all of our life to God? Have we surrendered all to Him? And have we given Him all lordship? Let's go to God in prayer. Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may ponder and reflect deeply on the words of Jesus because there is so much there. We pray for ourselves that it will be a real wake-up for us if we have not entered into the kingdom of heaven to ask ourselves why. Why do we not want to enter into the kingdom of heaven? What reason could there be for us rejecting the invitation to come to this great wedding banquet where there will be joy and celebration and happiness. And dear Father, we pray for us who have entered into the kingdom of heaven to ask ourselves truly, are we wearing wearing the wedding clothes that you want us to wear, the wedding clothes of repentance and total surrender? And dear Father, to see that we are made in your image, And that as those who are made in your image, we are to give back to you what you deserve. Our loyalty, our obedience, our allegiance. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.